But one thing about me, I um, not only am I terrible at, but I cannot stand math. Any kind of math. Everybody, some people can relate. Some of you, you know, you can't. But that's okay. You're still weird, but it's okay. Um, I'm terrible at it. I can't do math at all. Like I took some math in high school and forgot all that, then got to college and was like, crap, I have to remember this again. And so I'd remembered it and really didn't. My, math, my wife basically passed that class for me. So um, to be honest, you ask her about it, she'll tell you the truth. Um, and, and since then, I haven't really done much math. It's just not, I don't enjoy doing it. If I have to do it, there's a, a cool thing called smartphones now, and they have calculators, and you can do some cool stuff with them. You should try them out. Uh, but every once in a while, I'll meet with a student, more than every once in a while, unfortunately. But every once in a while, I'll meet with a student who will say, you know, I'm asking them about their school. How's it going? What's your favorite subject? And they're like, oh, I love math. And immediately, I ask them to leave student ministry because I can't handle that. It's just terrible. Please don't come. No, I'm just playing. No, but I do cringe a little inside. I do cringe a little inside. I, I can't stand math. And I just, they'll start talking to me about like, trigonometry and calculus and all these things. And I'm like, I don't even know what those are. Like, cool. You're smart. I'm not there. It's fine. You can love what you love. It's for you. Definitely not for me. But say all of a sudden the Lord gave me, it's not going to happen, but the Lord gave me a, just a, a want to know more math, a passion for mathematics. What would I have to do? Oh, I'd have to start with the basics. I have to start with 2 plus 2 equals 4. Got that one right. I have to go maybe to some subtraction after that, maybe some multiplication. But to be honest, if you put like a high level, like not even a high level, this is like fourth grade math probably, but like any kind of complex multiplication where there's like a thousand times whatever, I'll be like, I don't, I don't even know how to, I think you carry something and add some zeros or something. I don't know. Long division, I'm lost. It's over. But if I started with the basics, I could work my way up to calculus. Right? I would say that's correct. Will I do that? Absolutely not. But I'd get there. I'm a musician, so I play about three different instruments. And each time I want to practice or learn a song on those instruments, it's very fundamental to practice the basics before I get there. If I don't have the basics down on that instrument, I can't ever have any hope of getting anywhere complex, anywhere organized with music. I have to have the basics. We can apply that principle of getting back to the basics to a lot of different things. Practice you have, occupation you have, hobby, activity. The basics are essential in whatever that is. Christianity is no different. Often, the culture that Christian culture uh, is, often it, it dictates things that are important that aren't really part of the basics. To be certain, a lot of things are important. For instance, the political beliefs we hold are important. Our standpoint on certain theological issues, important. However, the importance of those issues are only because of how important the basics are. And sometimes we get lost in the complex, in the issues that we have today, in the climate we live in today. 
seems like Christianity is always having to deal with some issue when we lose sight of the basics. Well, this morning, the passage we have is a great reminder of the basics of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to walk in Christ as a follower of him. So if you've got your Bibles, let's start in verse 8. We'll read to verse 10 in this first section. It says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. Paul begins this passage speaking about Christians and and how they're not to owe anyone anything. If we remember correctly the context of the previous passage, uh, this owing is what, what Paul is talking about is financial. Paul wants us to understand that as believers, we should be fiscally responsible and respectful to those uh, who we owe money toward as a testimony of Christ in us. However, with that in mind, Paul does expect us to owe something. That something is the most basic of Christian attributes, love, which leads us to our first point today. As believers, we are to walk in love. The command to love is not isolated to the book of Romans. We can look back at the teachings of Jesus and see that he taught us to love your neighbor as yourself, quoting the Old Testament, and to, put, uh, to love one another just as I have loved you. Paul also speaks of how we should, uh, above all things, put on love and to bear with one another in love. Indeed, even Peter and John, the disciples of Jesus, put it this way, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. And John, we love because he first loved us. In this passage of scripture, Paul looks at love as a debt that we can never repay. Paul looks at the many debts previously that will come in life due to government institutions and, and recognizes that maybe those are a part of life but, uh, and you should pay those off. But for a Christian, there is a debt that we can never pay off, the love that was given to us by Jesus. The cross was the one act of love that can never be repaid. Therefore, the believer is to live and to act with that debt as a defining characteristic in their life. But it's not the kind of debt you're thinking of. There's all kinds of debt in this world that's really terrible to have. Um, There aren't many people in my generation that don't have college loans. And Samantha and I play that game, you know, you won the lottery, what's the first thing you do? Immediately, I almost always say, pay off college debt, because I just don't like having it. I don't like having that on my back. And I know many of you know that feeling. That's the kind of debt that that hovers there. You want it to go away, it's a burden. But the debt of the cross isn't a burden. It's a privilege. And to live in it is a testimony to God's love 
and grace to us who didn't deserve it. Paul also looks at, the, at love from the angle of the law. And that's honestly not super surprising. Paul's been speaking about the law throughout the entire book of Romans. But what he says here is very, very important. He says that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The law that Paul is talking about and has been talking about is the Mosaic law. The, Paul, the, the law that was given to Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness. And if we look at that parallel, it's very interesting. What Paul is doing here is showing that the law was given for a reason. And that reason, especially back then, was for the people of Israel to be the representatives of God everywhere through love, through loving their neighbor. But we also continue to read that story after that law was given. The Israelites have a bit of a love issue. It doesn't matter if they had a king or a priest or a servant or anybody in between. Look at that list that Paul gives us. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet and any other commandment. I can think of one guy who was a, an Israelite king who broke every single one of those. His name was David. We have it in writing. And he's just one example of many of breaking those laws that God gave to the Israelite people to keep sacred. If Israel had loved their neighbor like they were supposed to, those issues wouldn't have happened. Israel had a love issue. Now, no one disagrees with what I've said so far, hopefully, because these are things we learned in Sunday school. But love isn't that simple, is it? The command to love is much harder in real life. I am fascinated with contemporary Christian culture from the 90s and the early 2000s. And one person that I love has that uh, in common with me is Tracy McElhatton. Every once in a while, I'll throw some kind of reference together and she's like, yeah, you know, we know we went through it. And I know many of you also did. Um, the part of my fascination with it is because it's, you know, corny and, and all those kinds of things, but it's fun to listen to all those things. But there are a few gems in the CCM catalog, Christian contemporary music. One of those gems that we, I listen to, and even we listen to often, is Cayman's Call. If you don't know the band Cayman's Call, you need to go learn about them. They're on Spotify. Go check them out. Cool little acoustic folky Christian band from the 90s and early 2000s. And they have a song called Love is Different. And in that chorus, it says this. Love is different than you think. It's never in a song or on a TV screen. And love is harder than a word, said at the right time, and everything is all right. Love is different than you think. See, we romanticize love in our culture. Most of the things that we say we love 
probably not really a good definition of that word. For instance, uh, we were talking to my son the other day about things he loved. And the other day he told us he loved a Tyrannosaurus Rex more than water. So I was like, buddy, I get what you're saying, but wrong word, you know. He loves Tyrannosaurus Rexes because he's a four-year-old who loves dinosaurs, and that's awesome. But does he love, is he using that word? But we, we use that word the same way, folks. We really just use it to indicate something that we like or something that we feel supports us. Really, when we get down to it, our view of love typically only works with people we like or things we like or support. If I love something, that means I support it. Or really more blatantly, if I love someone, it's only because they're on my side or support me. Think about most of mine and your relationships. There's something that we get out of it. Sure, there's difficulty because relationships are difficult, but ultimately our relationships aren't with people who are difficult to love. They just aren't. They're with people who are easy to love. And even with those people who are easy to love, when relationships become difficult with that person, we overlook real problems under the guise of love. We've missed a lot of what Paul is trying to indicate to us. Paul's definition of love goes beyond how easy we like it to make on ourselves. This goes way beyond how easy we like it. Think of this. Do you love everyone without qualification? In Colorado, we get to fellowship with Mountain Heights Baptist Church, and it's always a, a blessing to do that. And one of the people I love fellowshipping with the most is Pastor Joe. He's the pastor out there. And he challenged me majorly that week and honest, looked at me honestly and said, do you really love everybody without qualification, whatever their values are? Do you show the love of Christ to everyone on social media in real life? And I think my answer, if I was honest, is no. And I think everyone answers in this room, if we're honest, it's probably not. But that's the kind of love that Paul is talking about. Paul's definition of love is that we owe everyone full stop love. The homeless, the rich, the Republican, the Democrat, the socialite, the recluse, those who are pro-life, those who are pro-choice, citizens, immigrants. There is not a single person who we do not owe love to. We don't get the choice because even though we were once sinners, Christ died for us. If our love is to reflect 
God's love for us, our love is for sinners who deserve nothing but are offered everything through the cross. We get to share about the amazing love that we live in by showing that love to the world. What an amazing place to be. Truly living in Christ. Truly showing that love to everyone in contact. Now, I, I know what some of you may be thinking. I hear what you're saying, Zach. But aren't there some who would take what you're saying and abuse it? Isn't that why so many churches and believers have gone astray from the world? And from the word and are adopting values that simply aren't found in scripture? Into that, I would say you're absolutely right. There are many who take advantage of the love of God and twist it into something that it isn't. Which is why our second point this morning is that as believers, we should walk in holiness. Read on with me in our passage. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Examining this passage, the first verse we read uh, is Paul that is saying that the end is nearer than before, which is still true today. The end is nearer than it was yesterday. It will be nearer in two minutes from now than it was two minutes from now. There's so many things that that, that truth is there. And we often just focus on that truth, but he, he moves past that. He talks about the salvation uh, that is given. And it's not a salvation that's a cross-earned salvation as much as it is the return of Christ and how he will save us from the powers of this world. The two are intertwined, surely, but that's what Paul is talking about. And it's that focus that Paul gives us. that We are near the end, folks. Christ is coming back. Therefore, Take off darkness. Put on light. Which is really just code for get busy about being about the work of Christ. Get busy about your own personal holiness. I think like love though, holiness is defined poorly by many today. It's not hard to believe that God wants us to be good people. I mean, look at the law, the Old Testament. Look at the commandments of the Old Testament. There are many of them. If you're a believer, you're not uh, supposed to be a a liar or a thief or an adulterer. The list goes on and on and on. But is not doing bad things and doing good things really holiness? I don't think it is. If, if it is, there are many good people out there who are holy, but aren't believers. 
And that's problematic. It's not solely what we do that makes us holy. It's who we're with, God, and why we do what we do, his grace, that makes the difference. Without Christ, holiness is impossible to attain. Because without him, the grace and the love that give us the ability to be holy aren't there. Without them, we're working in our own effort, not Christ's. And when that happens, we base everything off of our own effort rather than the love and the grace of Christ. Functionally, it's a rejection of grace. Let me explain what I mean. Someone who's not a believer ignores sin in their life, does not come to the truth of who Christ is, so what the gospel means. That's a blatant rejection of grace, right? We can clearly see that. Makes sense. But just the same, a believer who makes excuses for sin in their life puts their sin off till later to handle with, functionally rejects the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I I know I'm not supposed to do this. Lord, I know I need to kill this sin. I'll do that later. I don't need your grace right now. Or worse, Lord, what you call sin really isn't sin, so I'm gonna redefine it. So I don't need grace. It's a rejection of the love and the grace that God gives us. Or worse, we become like the older brother in the tales of the prodigal son. You think back to that story in Luke 15, younger son comes home after wasting his father's inheritance. What does the father do? Gives him grace, gives him love, welcomes him back, throws a party. The older son who's been there the whole time working his butt off, comes outside during the party and chews his dad out. He says, I've slaved away all these years. I've worked. I've kept your land up. And now this boy comes home and you throw him a party when I don't get anything. He misunderstood holiness. He worked, he worked, he worked, he worked. The reason he misunderstood holiness is because he didn't see the love of the Father right there in front of him. If you're somebody who grew up in church, in Christian culture, you most likely ended up in a situation like this. In church, we're taught what to do, what not to do, through the scriptures, and hopefully it was taught at home as well, because those things are right. They're good, ordained by God. But we like to mess things up. Somewhere along the line, we decided to make this holiness thing into a game. And it's got a scorecard and everything. It's called self-righteousness. It's not a fun game. In fact, everybody who plays it pretty much ends up miserable. Because even though that we were taught that the grace of God is the fuel for our holiness... 
We exchange God's grace for our effort. And then we turn into the son I mentioned earlier who's unable to recognize the love of the father that's right in front of him. And when we're unable to recognize that love, it's absolutely no surprise when we're unable to love others, especially those who are different than us. So you see in Christianity, the two basics, love and holiness, go absolutely hand in hand. When we separate the two, we get into trouble. Those who separate love from holiness make exception for sin that is not permitted in Scripture and then end up redefining what love is, not according to Scripture. On the other hand, if you have holiness without love, you end up without any love for anyone. And you have to redefine holiness into something it's not. So what do we do? I've been in both of those pitfalls of loving when, calling it love when it wasn't and calling it holiness when it wasn't. But the first thing I think to help us is to see Christ as our example. He never shied away from loving those who were from all walks of life. Look at his ministry. Beggar, blind man, prostitute. On the other side, doctor, teacher, Pharisee. He loved them all. Yet, He didn't compromise his personal holiness to do so. He remained holy. He remained steadfast to the Father. Folks, we will do the same things with love and holiness over and over and over until the gospel of Jesus Christ is our daily focus. Our love for others will continue to be selfish and misplaced. And our view of spiritual growth will continue to look like a scoreboard that we compare with everybody else in the room. My question for you today is, are either of those things you? I can tell you if it is. Do you feel disappointed with yourself or everyone around you, you've probably misplaced love and holiness. Do you feel like you're not good enough? You've probably misplaced love and holiness. Do you feel like no one else around you is good enough? Probably misplaced love and holiness. Do you find it hard to love those who are different than you in appearance or ideology? You've probably misplaced love and holiness. I think that's the case for many of us in this room. I think these things are daily struggles for us to love everyone as Christ loves us. To be holy because God is holy. These are not easy things to do. 
they're the basics. And if I take a good look around at my life, it's time to get back to the basics. And I think many of you feel the same way. Remove the distractions. Come to Christ. Give him the things you struggle with. He loves you. His grace is sufficient for whatever you've done. Wherever you find yourself, he knows every burden that you go through. He has an answer. It's the gospel. It's the only place where true love and true holiness can be found. Pray with me.